Thanks for joining us for today's message. We encourage you to email us and let us know what God is currently doing in your life. Or if you'd like to support the ministry financially, you can do so here on our website. For now, we hope you enjoy this message. Thanks for tuning in today. All right. We're going to open in Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. I don't know where to put this. Set it right there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13 says, But go. This is Jesus talking to us. He says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm going to switch over to this. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is Jesus talking. He says, Go and learn what this means. Go and learn. I think if Jesus is saying, Go and learn about this. We should probably check it out on our own, right? We should learn more about this. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call the righteous, not, uh, the right, not, not call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. Matthew 9, 13. So we're going to talk tonight about mercy. We're going to talk about maybe what this means when Jesus is saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, there's a movie that came out, uh, I think it was 2011, within the last 10 years, called The Tree of Life. Uh, by Terrence Malick, written and directed by Terrence Malick. Did anybody see it? Any? Probably not. Nobody saw it. I'm the only one. Maybe Julene? Maybe? Okay. It's called The Tree of Life. It was a movie, a Hollywood movie, secular movie put out in the theaters. Uh, movie set in the 1950s. I'm going to read you the IMDb synopsis because I just thought it was so cool. This, once again, remember, this is a secular movie that was put out in secular theaters, and it was starring Brad Pitt, Jessica Chastain. It was starring uh, Sean Penn, I think, was in it. A big movie. Here's the synopsis from imdb.com, the International Movie Database. It says, Tree of Life is a period piece centered around three boys in the 1950s. The movie, which exists as a metaphysical meditation and a lyrical poem, focuses at a microcosmic level on the story of Jack, a jaded, Middle-aged man, played by Sean Penn, scarred by the memories of an oppressive upbringing by his father, Brad Pitt, as well as the untimely death of his younger brother. At first, all seems marvelous to Jack as a child. He sees as his mother does, with the eyes of his soul. She represents the way of love and mercy. Isn't that beautiful? Where the father tries to teach his son the world's way of putting oneself first. Each parent contends for his allegiance, and Jack must reconcile their claims. Framing this story is that of now adult Jack, and he finds himself as a lost soul in the modern world. You wonder how many people can relate to that right now here today, the lost soul in the modern world. Jack, he's a jaded middle-aged man now. And I'm sorry, I lost my... I lost something. Seeking, so here's Jack seeking to discover the eternal scheme of which we are all a part. And there's this moment in the movie, so he's, he's trying to seek, you know, he's having like an existential crisis and just doesn't know his place in the world and why we're here and what we're here for. And all of a sudden in the movie, there's this, it cuts to this really, probably like 15 to 20 minute long montage, it's wild, of creation. Shows the universe before there was nothing. Shows the, what would they call the Big Bang or what, you know, what we say when Jesus spoke, something came out of nothing, Right? But it shows this, and it shows creation, and it's this vision that Jack is having of what all in, was, was taken, in, you know, what took place in creation, and how grand and how magnificent it was, and how tiny of a little speck we are, a part of that whole creation. And it says, when he sees all that, that has gone into our world's preparation, 
Each thing appears as a miraculous and precious. Everything appears as miraculous and precious and incomparable. Jack, with his new understanding, is able to forgive his father and take his first steps on the path of life. I love that Jack, he finally has new eyes. He's got a revelation and he can finally forgive his father. How cool. The story ends in hope acknowledging the beauty and joy in all things, in the everyday and above all in the family, which is our first school, the only place that most of us learn the truth about the world and ourselves at, at home. Or, or discover life's single most important lesson of unselfish love. That's directly from imdb.com. So I mean, man, this movie... Yes, that's, that sounds like the gospel right there, right? I mean, maybe we should just throw that movie on and watch that tonight. But you don't have enough time. But I mean, what, what a beautiful synopsis for, for a movie. And this movie, it's, it's very artsy. It's very, when you watch it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot to get through, a lot to chew on. You really have to take away what you take from it. It doesn't just explicitly say it, you know? So it's kind of one of those movies where you're going to either love it or hate it. I loved it. It's one of those movies where I watched it and I, it just stuck with me for days. And I was thinking about the different moments and the different beats and... Man, years later, I'm still thinking about this, this movie, The Tree of Life. And so here's a, just a few quotes quick. It says, Jack, he was, in the movie, he was, he, was, he was talking about his life. And Jack says, talking about when he was a child, he said, the nuns, they taught us that there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. And you have to choose one, the one in which you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. It accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. It accepts injuries and insults. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too. Likes to lord over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it. And love, love is smiling through all things. He said, the nuns, they taught us that no one who ever loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. Just beautiful. That's those quotes from the movie, The Tree of Life. That movie has just stuck with me for so long. Just this mother, this mother and a father, he's got this dichotomy, two different, two different parents, and they both have different views of the world, different world views, the way of nature the way of the world, the way the world works, jaded, and the way of love and mercy. So he's got this push and pull of different directions of how he should live his life. Do I want to be like mom or do I want to be like dad? My wife sent me this, just one of those you know, quotes you send each other all the time. It said, I love what it said. It said, one generation full of deeply loving parents would change the brain of the next generation. And with that, the world. And it's so true. Just one generation of parents doing the right thing and training their kids up in love and mercy could have an effect on the entire world if we just chose to do it. So we're going to turn this morning to Matthew, or this evening, we're going to turn to Matthew 5, chapter 5, 48. And I guess you don't have to turn there. It's a pretty quick verse. Jesus, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to a crowd and he says, I'm actually going to read it. Yeah, he says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. So be perfect as your father is perfect. Well, listening, if I'm in that crowd, man, Jesus, that's a high bar you set, man. Be perfect? Like God is perfect? 
doesn't seem attainable, but okay. Now, what's cool is if you go to Luke. In Luke 6.36, which is this telling of the same story, Luke, what does he write based on his observation of this? He said, be what? Merciful as your father is. Merciful, right? The gospel, the gospel writers, they use two different words for the exact same story. What Jesus in Matthew calls perfection, Jesus in Luke calls mercy. Luke is expounding on what Matthew refers to as perfect. We learn that God is not just perfect, he's not just merciful, but he's perfect in his mercy. That is good news. That is the good news. That's what we're called to imitate. Mercy, love. We're called to be Christ's followers, right? We, we know from experience that we probably aren't even gonna come close to perfection, obviously, right? Perfection, that's a bar that's been set. Perfect, being perfect. It's impossible. God is perfect, but it, man, there's no way I could achieve that. We can strive. We, can, we, we can't be ever perfect because that's just a bar, but we can strive. We can choose. We can try to be merciful. Being merciful is a choice. And as part of that same sermon, Jesus says to his, he says, his disciples are to do different things than what they've thought in the past. Do, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. He's telling them all these things that they'd never heard before. They'd never realized life it's supposed to be like that. Jesus gives us good news and a, and a way to live a better life and a way that heals the world. He spells it out. Be like the Father who is perfect, who is merciful. If we're not careful, we can really misread sometimes what the Bible's trying to tell us, what Jesus is telling us. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I was born in 1980. So I saw the whole decade, the whole decade of the 90s. And the 80s were interesting because as I was six, seven, eight, kind of those real informative years of growing up, that's where you kind of have memories back to. I don't remember things past that. But six, seven, eight, I started having memories. And I remember that time of life just of the, in the United States. It was very rebellious. It was very anti the system. Everybody, it was punk rock, right? There's going to be punk rockers out there. So, I mean, it was just punk. Everything was punk rock and Everybody's getting mohawks and tattoos and piercings and everything was just do, do, do what you're not supposed to do, right? And I remember living through that and I remember watching and, you know, what I felt bad was I, I felt like the church, and I'm not, I'm not talking to us, I'm not talking to what, I'm just talking the church in general, right? The church in general, I just felt like was very, very judgmental through those years, very, man, you got a tattoo, that's, that's the devil, you're going to hell. You got a you you ear piercing, that's the devil, you're going to hell. You know, everything was condemned, everything was judged, everything was evil, and unless you were living this perfect holy life, just how, you know, how they want, how we should, you know, how they think you should. So it was very, 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 very judgmental. The 90s were the same way, a very rebellious culture, very, you know, anti-God, but very rebellious, and people are trying to find their way in life. And once again, the church from... My perspective, it's one person's, is just, you know, man, a lot of condemnation, a lot of judgment. So when the world's looking at this, though, I, you know, you think to yourself, man, what does the world think if, we, if that's all we're doing is just, man, you're, you're a herald, or they're evil, they're bad, they're, you know, they're condemned, they're going to hell, they're sinners. What's the world perceiving that like? Man, they, they're like, hey, Christianity, they're just all hypocrites and, you know, judgmental. 
Why? Well, I don't know, because that's what their God's like. He, you know, if you read the Bible, he's, a, he's judgmental, right? He's a judge. So then us Christians, like, yeah, I guess that Bible says that. We've got to judge everybody around us. Condemn. Tell them they're going to hell so that they get their life straight. We, carry, we, we feel like we have to carry that out so that everyone can act godly just like us. What's so ironic is that's just exactly the spirit of the Pharisees that Jesus addressed time and time again. That was exactly what the Pharisees thought and how they thought. Man, the 90s, the 2000s, the 20s, I mean, the going, going on and on. I mean, Christianity, what are we doing? We, we are loud, we're vocal. We get in people's face. We protest. We protest gay marriage. We protest abortion. We protest, I mean, we protest everything. Everything we don't like, we protest. We yell, we holler. And that's what the world sees. And I've heard preachers, I've even heard, over the years I've heard people say, not just preachers, but even on, you know, Christians, I've heard them say, well, Jesus cracked the whip. Jesus cracked the whip. He overturned the tables. Remember, sometimes that's just what the world needs, a good whip cracking. I've heard that said, you know, and, and we even use the excuse, you know, righteous anger. We call it our, when we're angry at someone, we call it righteous anger to kind of, you know, make it sound like it's okay. Righteous anger. I got righteous anger at that group of people. That's what the Pharisees did. But what they didn't realize is that holiness, you know, you got the holiness culture where you got to, you can't wear this, you can't do that, you can't eat this, you can't watch this movie. You can't, you know, you can't do anything without, you know, it could, won't make you holy anymore. But holiness, if it doesn't look like mercy, if holiness doesn't look like love, it's not holy. Why? I mean, because we know, we know what God is like now. We know God is like Jesus and Jesus, we have every, we have everything spelled out, what he said, what he taught us. We have his whole ministry laid out before us in the Bible. So we know now that God is merciful and what is Jesus' blame in the New Testament but blaming itself? What does he accuse in the New Testament but accusation? I mean, it's really quite poetic. Who receives the anger rebuke of Jesus? The Pharisees. The morality police. You guys remember back to the 90s? Bow down before the one you serve. Remember Nine Inch Nails? You're gonna get what? Yeah, we got some sinners in here. Okay. <laughs> Previous sinners. Let's clear that up a little bit. Bow down before the one you serve. You're gonna get what you deserve. That was a top hit on the radio in the 90s. Trent Reznor wrote that. Bow down before the one you serve. You're gonna get what you deserve. Man, which God do we serve? That's the question tonight. What God do we serve? Because the good news is, God is a God of mercy. And you're not going to get what you deserve from God. Because he's full of mercy. That's the good news. So take that, Trent. <laughs> take that, Trent Reznor. I mean, yeah, if you, do, if you bow down before the ways of this world, yes, you are going to get what you deserve. Unfortunately, that is the cold, hard truth, the reality of this life that we live in. But the good news, once again, is if you bow down before the King of Kings, you're going to get mercy. You're going to get forgiveness. 
you're going to get acceptance. That's the good news that we're to propagate in this world. You know, mercy, it's not, it's not just forgiveness. You know, some of the, the basic way that mercy is typically described, it's mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? Kind of the opposite. Have you heard grace? Grace is getting, <clears throat> grace is getting what you don't deserve. We've heard this before. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And, and I mean, yeah, you can, you can say that's an easy way to explain it, but it's so much more than that. Even grace, you think about grace, grace really is the presence, the power, the spirit of God in your life, his unmerited favor in there. And you have, of course, that's, that's not deserved. It's freely given to you. Same thing with mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But it's not just withholding punishment. Heavenly mercy is so much more than that. In the Hebrew scriptures, one word for mercy is raham, R-A-H-A-M, raham. And this is a homonym for the word womb in Hebrew. So it's the same word, it's the same word raham, and it's, it can either mean mercy or it can mean womb, like a mother's womb. So it compares God's compassion, his mercy, to that of a woman's pregnant belly who, you know, every time she looks down, there's no way she can't see that belly. She can't see that baby that's growing inside her. And, and it can't, you know, there's no way she's not aware of it at all times. She's, she's there. She's growing it. She's nurturing it in her body. Her, her womb surrounds it. It protects it. It hides it. It conceals it. And that's what the Bible says. Another word for mercy. Man, it's, it's like God's womb for you. God knows how fragile we are. He knows how weak and how much help we're going to need. So he, he says, man, he pours out his mercy to us, just like a pregnant mother would. She's not going to overlook her baby growing inside her belly. Mercy here in this, in this definition is full of concern. It's full of compassion. It's full of affection. That's mercy. See, it's not just about not getting what you don't deserve or what you do deserve. Man, it's about concern, compassion, affection. And then another word for mercy is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It includes God's compassion again. It includes his forgiveness. So that's now where we get the forgiveness part of it. It, in, it includes comfort. It includes healing care. Mercy includes God's healing care in your life. I mean, if you're looking for healing in, in your life, make sure you're showing mercy to those around you. Because the Bible says when, you know, as much mercy is given, that's how much mercy you will receive in your life. That very well might be your, your, your key to your healing that you need. So knowing this, knowing that mercy is more than just forgiveness, it's more than just not getting what you might deserve, but man, mercy is so much more. We can correctly now, we can correctly define it as every manifestation of God's goodness toward his beloved children, that's mercy. Far more than withholding punishment, far more than just forgiveness, but man, it's God's mercies refer to the myriad of ways in which we experience God's divine love. Along with this promise, man, his mercies endure forever. His mercies are new every morning. You can't separate divine love without mercy, and we can't separate mercy without love. So we're talking about holiness early and being perfect and trying, you know, God is perfect, be perfect. And obviously that's not attainable for us, but only through mercy can we achieve perfection. Perfection. 
But here, the, the perfection God is looking for is not just this unattainable perfection and flawlessness, living this flawless life like the Pharisees tried to act like they were doing. You know, I'm holier than thou, I'm doing everything right. And No, that's not, the, per, the perfection God is looking for is not that. It's not this unattainable perfection of flawlessness, but it's the fully attainable, it's the fully attainable perfection of extending mercy to those who are flawed. That's the difference. It's not trying to achieve flawlessness. It's about extending mercy to those who are flawed. That's perfection. That's what God is looking for. That's the heart God is seeking after. James 2.13, it says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, what does it say? Triumphs over judgment. Let's say that again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Not some of the times, not in certain situations. It triumphs over judgment every time. And forever it will be. We know what God is like. We've met him. Judgment is a worldly reality. It's most often in our lives, it's self-induced. Man, we sin over and over and over and Years of sinning and all of a sudden our life is a wreck and we don't realize, we think, oh man, God must be judging me. God must be placing this turmoil in my life when really all along it was just our sin that we were never able to let go of, causing that destruction. Yet, God gets the blame. When God says he desires mercy and not sacrifice, I think he truly meant it. Yet human nature, it's, it's our human nature that craves sacrifice. It's human nature that craves payback. Man, we love karma. We crave karma. Man, I demand. I, man, you took money from me. You, you pay me back what you owe me. I demand retribution. Man, I've lived a good life. They've lived a terrible one. They've, they've been sinning their whole life. Man, hey, that's the, they made their bed. They're going to have to sleep in it. You ever heard that? I made good choices, that's on them. Judgment versus mercy. I, that, that's why I love so much the story of the prodigal son, and I know we just talked about it a few weeks ago, but I wanted to say one thing about it. I, you know, it just, it just, for me, there's so many, there's so many you know, ways you could define who God is for you, who, you know, or what God is like. But man, for me, whenever I think about who God is, Man, I go right to the story, the parable of the prodigal son. I think that is the most beautiful told story of what God is like. And, and if you notice in that story, the God, it, says that, it says that the father saw his son coming from afar. Have you ever caught that before? It says he saw him coming from afar. So what does that mean, man? Every, every day, every day the father is going out to his terrace. He's, scan, he's scanning the horizon. He's looking. He, is, that, is that him? No, 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 it's, that's a goat. Okay, no, is that, no, it's not him. It's, every day he's going out, he's standing and he's, he's watching for his son so desperate, wanting him to come back, yearning for the day to see him again, to hold him, to hug him. So many people think, man, I've gotten, I've gotten so far from God. I've, I've walked so far away from him that surely I'm too far for God to even care. His back's probably turned on me at this point, not realizing that God is standing on the terrace and he's waiting for you. He's just, he's gay. He, he can't wait for you to come back. Not so he can slap you over the head, so he can embrace you. 
And what does it say after that? It says the father, father embraces him. The son, it says the son had this whole message prepared for him. He was gonna, oh, maybe if I, maybe if I, okay, I'm just gonna rehearse this a few times. If I say this, if I, you know, God did that, I'm so sorry I did this, but you know, I didn't mean to. You know, no, he had a whole, whole rehearsal. But what does it say? It says, he didn't even let him talk. Son shows up, he just grabs him and hugs him, loves him, and doesn't even give him a chance to ask for forgiveness. Nothing. What does he do next? He goes and, I'm gonna go throw a party. He goes and gets the party ready. That's God. That's who God is. And then meanwhile, what do we, what do we see? We, we have one more person in this story, the brother, right? And it's interesting when, you, when, I, when I read the story, I mean, who do we as, Christ, as mature, you know, a mature Christian that's been doing it for quite a while, man, in that story, I feel like I do anyways relate to that brother the most when I read that story. I'm not talking about the prodigal son. I'm talking about his brother who was faithful his whole life, faithful to his dad, worked every day for his dad, did everything. What the heck, man? I've been doing this for 40 years. Our brother leaves, spends all your money, does God knows what with it. Now he's crawling back and you're gonna, what? You're gonna throw him a party? When was the last time you threw me a party, God? See, his brother wanted compensation. His brother wanted his brother, his brother wanted the prodigal son to get what he deserved. That's what he wanted. That's what his flesh wanted. He wants his brother to get what's owed. See, the brother is the Pharisees in this story. Jesus is telling this story to a crowd. There's Pharisees there. Everybody, everybody knows the story of what you do with the prodigal son. In the Old Testament, you stone the kid. Set him right, man. Stone that kid. Easy breezy. He's out of here. Problem solved. But what's God saying? Now, Jesus is saying, man, this is what the father's like. This is the heart of God. Man, I embrace that kid. I'm throwing him a party. The, the son, the prodigal son in this story is the, the blessed people talked about in the Beatitudes. Remember the blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the downtrodden. They're not blessed because they're poor. They're blessed because they realize that nothing in this world has anything that could possibly offer them. They've tried everything else and now they're at this point in their life where they're so depraved, so broken down that they realize my only, cho- my, my only chance is to turn to the Father. He's the only one that can fix this. That's why they're blessed. And that's why it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because man, I've got everything I need. Life's pretty easy. I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. I don't really need anybody. I don't, surely don't need God. I mean, I'm taken care of. It's a pretty easy trap to fall into when life's good, when life's easy, when you have everything you need. But that's why they're blessed because they realize they, they're empty without him. The brother could have been blessed as well. He could have been blessed. He could have chosen mercy. He could have chosen love. But he was so stuck in what he thought his father wanted. He was so hung up on getting what you deserve that his heart had hardened to the truth of what his father really wanted. Just like the Pharisees. And man, if we're not careful, even a, we can end up like that in our own life. Mercy, mercy. Jesus taught over and over about love and mercy. He taught, man, you read the story of the narrow gate. He, 
He taught about the priority of loving neighbors as ourselves being the criteria for judgment. That's the criteria for judgment. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Are you doing that? Let's just read about that. Jesus, Jesus taught that the golden rule is the narrow gate. Do we all know that? The golden rule is the narrow gate. Do unto others as you would have done unto your, uh, unto your own self. The narrow, gate, the narrow gate isn't the sinner's prayer. It's not this perfect way of living your life. Sure, the sinner's prayer is great and it points people to Christ. Of course. But man, a life of mercy, a life of love is what will bring you to ultimately to your salvation and others around you. Praying the sinner's prayer isn't gonna affect anybody around you. I mean, saying praying it for yourself. But living a life of love and mercy, that's what'll bring you salvation and people around you. That's why it says, man, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are so many people who take it, right? Of course, man, that road is easy when you're talking about self and living a, I'm just concerned about myself and my bills are paid. And you know, like, yeah, that's an easy way. Talking, you know, only concerned about yourself. Easy to judge everybody, be cynical. Attack, it's easy. But the narrow the narrow road, few, it says few find it. And I remember growing up and I remember reading that passage and I'm thinking, dang, the narrow road, few find it. What chance do I have, right? I mean, has anybody thought that maybe? I, I definitely had that thought. Man, if it's so narrow and few find it, I mean, my dad is pretty much, my mom and my dad are pretty much saints and I'm sure they'll find out. I don't know if I will, because it's narrow. I'm not gonna, I don't, I'm not that perfect of a person, I mean, that's, those are literally thoughts I had, you know, growing up. And what we don't realize, it's not about living a flawless life. The narrow gate is about living a selfless life. It's hard. It goes against your flesh. It goes against your pursuits. It goes against your dreams. It goes against your desires. It requires you dying to yourself. Putting the welfare of others before yours. That is the narrow way. And that's what Jesus said is the only way that leads to life. It's the only way. There's not multiple ways. It's the only way. See, perfect love, a love built around mercy, a love built around forgiveness, hope, and peace casts out all fear. I love that verse in the Bible. Perfect love casts out fear. Well, of course it does because when you build your life around mercy and forgiveness and the hope and you walk in peace, what more do you have to be worried of? Man, you've given everything, you given, you've laid everything to God's hands. There's nothing to fear, but fear itself. I mean, I've got nothing to fear. Nothing anybody can do to me can take this away from me. Perfect love casts out all fear. It leads to life and few find it. Just like today, man, everybody lives in fear. Everybody's concerned about something, worried about something, worried about COVID, worried about the vaccine, worried about politics, worry, 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 worry. Instead, we just need to be praying mercy, 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 mercy. Say, I want to be one of the few. Amen. Luke 16. In Luke 16, verse 19, we're going to tell, read this story quick. 
It's the story of rich man and Lazarus. This is another parable. So this is a story Jesus is telling to a crowd and he's just trying to get a point across. He's using metaphors and says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted. Sorry, I might have a little bit. I was just looking at the translation. My translation's a little bit different, so I'm just going to read what I have. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs could come and lick his sores. See, one thing we need to know about this particular story, because once again, it's a parable that God's just trying to prick the people's heart. The Pharisees back then, they thought that, they believed, they viewed sickness as this is God's punishment to a person. That's what sickness was. When someone was, you know, when someone was a leper, when they were, you know, had any sort of sickness in their body, they must have done something horrible. God's judging them right now. God's penalizing them for the way they've lived their life. And so that's how the Pharisees viewed it. They viewed sickness as, as God's punishment for sin. That was the standard reading of Deuteronomy. Good people are blessed, bad people cursed. So Jesus is telling this crowd who knows this, he's saying the poor man died. Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, where he was being tormented, talking about the rich man, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Mm, what the heck? He called out. He said, Father Abraham, what does he say? Have mercy on me. Pity, but my, my translation, sorry. My translation, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip just the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am agony in these flames. Would you just send Lazarus over here? Abraham says, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he's comforted here. Isn't it interesting? This is, this is Jesus alluding to the great reversal that he preaches. Man, the last will be first. The first will be last. And now you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here cannot even do so. So the rich man says, but father, please, I beg you, send, send him to my father's house. I send, send Lazarus. I have four or five brothers that he may warn them so that they, they may also not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. You should, they should listen to them. And he said, no, Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, surely. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they ever be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So here's the story of this rich man who isn't, did you notice? What's the first thing he asks Abraham? He says, have mercy on me. Here's this man that lived his whole life sumptuously feeding himself, dressed in fine robes, never, you know, not a care in the world, not, could care less about this disgusting Lazarus that sits up in front of his house. Oh, get away from me, man. No mercy on that person. Eh, this guy probably sinned his whole life. That's why he's like that. And good thing I'm a good person, huh? And the other thing he it's interesting, he, he says, he begs him, he says, send Lazarus, the very guy I mistreated my whole life. He still views Lazarus as less than him. He still views Lazarus as kind of a slave or a servant to him. Send Lazarus to bring this to me. He still doesn't get the point. 
And then, and then, he, then he begs him to send, send Lazarus, send him over to my brothers. They, they need to know about this place. Once again, send, instead of saying, man, Abraham, have mercy on me for the way I treated these, the way I treated Lazarus, the way I treated the world, the way I lived my life. Have mercy on me. I see now, I, I have all these regrets. I have all these, man, I, I see how, how horrible I was. No, all he's concerned about still is himself. Man, I'm thirsty. Man, tell my brothers, they don't want to end up here. This sucks. Not a clue of what the point really was. Man, can you imagine Abraham just listening to him and being like, unbelievable. After all this time, this guy still just doesn't get it. So Jesus' teaching is basically this to those people. If you refuse to have love, if you refuse to show mercy, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You'll only end up a lonely, tormented soul. Man, if we take Jesus seriously, if we really take him seriously, we must never think, of, think, think the gospel is a means by which we can ignore suffering in this world, mock the poor, and still have everything turn all right. If you want to know how to find hell and how to end up there, it shows you right there. You can follow in the rich man's footsteps. He had no mercy in his present life and still no mercy in his afterlife. Reminds me of the story of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, in verse 31, it says, it's, this is another parable, and Jesus is talking about how the sheep and the goats said, judgment day will be separated, the good from the bad. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then I will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. You had no mercy in your life. He said, what does he say? Depart from me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these things, of these you did not do for me. Man, our salvation, it really requires something of us. Not rules, not regulations, not laws, endless laws, but works set forth by acts of mercy and love. It requires that. Oh, but I'm not saved by works. That's true. Not works by the law. You'll never be saved by being good enough, by following the rules enough. We'll always fall short. But we do find and show salvation in our good works. Mercy, showing mercy, showing love, bringing peace to this world, spreading hope. Last week, pastor preached on how faith works by love. Faith works by love. I want you to write down, if, you, if you're taking notes, write down three things. Faith without love is inoperable. Faith without love is inoperable. Because faith is fueled by it. And love is displayed in our mercy we show. That's how our love is displayed, man, and how much mercy we're, sh we're showing to the world. And the next one, that's one, faith without love is inoperable. Number two, faith without hope is empty. Why is that? Faith is a substance of things hoped for. So without hope, man, faith is just empty. Are we giving people hope or are we giving them condemnation? Which one? And the third one is faith without works is dead. I'm not saying that. James said that. So you can take that up with him. 
And we all know that faith, without faith, it's impossible. The Bible says it's impossible to please God. That's, yikes, let that sink in. Well, now knowing that, that's impossible to please God without faith, we better understand what, what it takes to make up faith, right? We need love. We need hope. We need to actually do something with it. Works. Jesus said, they'll know you by the way you love. Not the way you preach. Not the way you judge. By the way you love. Not the way you prophesy. Not the way you, how much you've read your Bible. All these good things. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But that's not what Jesus said. They won't know you by that. They'll know you by the way you love. They'll know you by the way you love. They'll know you by the way you love. Love acted out is shown through mercy. In Ephesians 3, the apostle Paul, man, he said, he said the love of God is so, it's so expansive. It's so inclusive beyond what we could ask or imagine. Beyond anything we could even think of. It's God's very essence is love. And it's ultimately displayed through the mercy he's shown for us on the cross. I mean, I've even heard people say, man, God, there's too much love talk. Really, if you're not careful, that well, so much love talk can really water it down. Too much love. It's too much love talk. But I would say to that, that's impossible. It's impossible to have too much love talk when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to following Jesus. Impossible. In fact, any limitation that we put on that, any caveats we impose on God's divine love, it only compromises the gospel. God's very essence is love. Trying to, limit it, trying to limit that just diminishes the magnitude of Christ's greatest gift that he gave us. And it can make, make our message as Christians anemic. Do we know what an, anemic means? Man, when, when you, in your blood, you have your blood cells given the life through your whole body. These blood cells, and when you're anemic, it means you have way less of them or some of them are dysfunctional. Man, we, have, we, we as Christians can, can, can become to have anemic faith. No, no love in it, no hope, no works. It's nothing. It's dead. We can have all the confessions. Man, we can confess all day long, confess till our, till our face is blue, but if we don't have love, it's not going to work. Faith without love, it's fueled by it. So if you want mercy in your life, Jesus is clear, man. You have to spread mercy. You have to show mercy. You have to give it to those around you. My wife, I'm winding this down. I'm sorry, this is taking longer than I ever could have imagined. My wife, my wife uh, sent me something a couple months ago. Or no, she, she, we were talking and she told she goes, Andy, I had, this, I had this thought the other day and it just really changed how I look at things. I'm like, oh yeah, babe, what is that? Not realizing it's about to profoundly change my whole life, right? In, in just a moment. She goes, I thought about, man, the other day I was just having a really tough day with the kids. She goes, and then I thought, I was about to get really upset, really freak out at him. She goes, and then I thought to myself, what does love look like in this situation? She says this. She goes, so now I've just been doing that. Whenever, whenever I just get real upset, whether it's with the kids or whether it's with you, <laughs> I just asked myself, what does love look like? And she goes, it's really crazy how it's really changed how I respond. So I'm like, oh, that's cool, babe. I didn't think much of it. And uh, you know, the week goes by and me and Kaylin are having a mild disagreement. You know, they're always only mild, right? 
And I remember, I'm just about ready to really fire back at her. And I remember just for a split second, what does love look like in this situation? And I'm just instantly, just instantly feel guilty. And yeah, what does love look like in this situation? Man, she, she really Trojan horsed me with that one. She really <laughs> incepted that into my mind. I think she fully knew when she planned that one out. But I think it's so beautiful. I mean, we really ask ourselves, ask yourself that when you're in a really difficult moment. What does love look like? I, do we have that picture? As a joke, we, we, I, I made this and we sent it to our friends when we're, we're being stupid. Like, we're, you know, if something a little crazy comes up, we'll be like, hey, don't remember, don't forget, what does love look like in this situation? Just as a joke. And, but it really is changed my life for me. It really does change how we respond to my kids. It really does change how we respond to my wife, my family, people at work, people I work with, you know, people that annoy me. It's really changed how I respond. What does love look like? And we know from the Bible that love takes no account of suffered wrongs. Love takes no account of suffered wrongs. That's mercy. Man, you're not getting what you deserve. Mercy. Love takes no account of suffered wrongs. I'll forgive once they pay me back. I mean, I've forgiven them, but I'll, you know, I, I, can, I think I can really heal. I can, I can actually talk to them again if you know, I finally get payback. And then I, then I feel like we'll really have healing in this situation. No, love takes no account of suffered wrongs. Mercy is way more than just forgiveness. I'll let it go if, if they can make peace. Eh, if they make it right, I suppose. But I forgive them. I, you know, I've let God, I've let go and let God. I forgive them. But we're not having mercy on them. We've just forgotten about that person. My dad always quotes, man, love covers a multitude of sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. And when you think about that, man, why does love cover a multitude of sin? And maybe it's because when we're so focused on loving a person, and walking in love with them with that we don't even see their sin because love covers it. We just choose to see the good in them. We choose to see the godly potential in their life. That's how we need to be towards our spouse, towards our children, towards our coworkers. That's what heals the world. Sometimes you just have to choose to see the good in people even when it's not there. Mark eleven twenty five says, Jesus said, when you stand praying, if you, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. While you're praying, man, if you hold anything, it's of the utmost importance. If you don't forgive them, God's it's not gonna be much mercy for you in the tank. And then, yeah, I'm sure we've all prayed that, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. See, we, you know, we can live out mercy in our life to others and we can also pray for mercy. When we pray mercy over situations, now we know it's not, it's not just forgive them, Lord. We talked about the different definitions of mercy earlier. It's not just forgive them. It's, it's, man, God, nurture them, take care of them, heal them, forgive them. It's all of the good things that God has to offer. It's all under one umbrella of mercy. And when you pray that, you are praying that over their life, over your life. Lord, have mercy. When you don't know what to pray over a situation, when the world is bleak and there's a horrific tragedy, man, just a simple prayer, Lord, have mercy. 
It's able to do things that you had never had, a, had any dream could do because God is in that. He's, it includes a full umbrella of God's divine favor over that situation. Lord, have mercy. So be merciful as your father is merciful. When you, blame, when you, when you can blame, have mercy. When you can shame, have mercy. When you can criticize, have mercy. When you, when you have a disagreement, have mercy. When you're completely right and you know it, have mercy. So that when you pray, Lord, have mercy on me, there will be a large reservoir of mercy for God to draw from. Amen. I'll end this. I'll end this the way I started it with a quote from Tree of Life. The only way to be happy is to love. Unless you love, your life will flash by. I just thought that was beautiful. Unless you love, your life will flash by. Thank you for listening to today's message. We'd love for you to join us for our Sunday morning service at 9.30, as well as our midweek service on Wednesday nights at 7. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.